Good morning, everyone. Glad to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3 is where we'll begin our study this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 3. This morning we're going to conclude our discussion on things relative to men who would be shepherds, elders, or bishops. I want to begin by stating what I said last Sunday as I began. The things that I will try my best to teach today are mine. They're my conclusions, the result of my study. I do not represent the eldership in doing this. I represent Ricky in doing this. It's my responsibility as an evangelist to instruct in this way. And so if there is a difference that you might have with that, something I might say, the difference is not with the elders. The difference is with me. And so I, I take that. I would ask, however, that you give consideration to some of the things that are said and that you think about them. I would reiterate again, Ricky alone does not determine who the next elders are of this congregation. And neither do, I, neither do I intend to come across as imposing in some dogmatic way what I am endeavoring to try to teach you. It is my responsibility as a teacher to try to study, prepare, and teach as sincerely and honestly as I can and as fairly as I can but your responsibility as a listener to take those things and you have to study those things yourself. I'm not responsible for making up your mind. I'm not responsible for telling you what to do. I'm responsible for trying my best to instruct you and persuade in doing so. But alas, you bear the responsibility for what you do with this information. I bear the responsibility for how I teach and what I teach with regard to the information. As I begin this lesson, I want to make this observation, please. As I've stated in the course of these lessons, this church has enjoyed 41 years of having stable leadership. It began with Daryl Davis, Ray Peden, and Bob Bolton. Shortly after Ray was asked to serve as an elder next six months, he had to move to East Texas. And that left for a number of years Dale Davis and Bob Bolton to serve. Both men served with great honor and dignity and leadership. Both have since passed away, and we pray for their realized hope as well. Five years before I moved here, Joe and Glenn Hartzell were asked to join Bob and Daryl. After a two-year spell of my being here, Glenn stepped down and left, and that left Joe and Daryl for a number of years. Then, several years later, Charlie King came on board as a part of the team and served for eight years before his job moved him up to Lynchburg, Virginia. Six months before Charlie came on, Breck and I were asked to take on this role. Eleven years later, James, Rick, and Terry were asked to also join this team of leadership. 
minus myself. I'm speaking of the other men. One of the things that has been, I think, a strength of this congregation. And I think there's two or three, but I think one of the things that have been a strength of this congregation has been the stable leadership this church has had. And the wisdom and judgment you have used in the men you have asked to lead you in this way. And at the end of the sermon today, we'll talk about things going forward of what we will do next. But I praise you for that, and I praise these men for their stable leadership. I am thankful for the history of the leadership in this church and the legacy that has been left that has been handed down. And so we want to continue. We want to continue with that stable leadership as we move forward. And so with that, let's begin our lesson. If you'd like to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. As I've said, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Beginning in verse, verse 4. Back up to verse, verse, uh, verse 2, please. A bishop then must be. An underlined circle highlight. We're going to come back to that word be in just a little while. Must be blameless, the husband of one wife. Temperate, sober-minded, a good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. Not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, but one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? If you'd like to thumb over real quickly to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. And verse 6 says, If a man be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. And so we come to the second of what I think are the two naughty challenges with regard to what we talk about when we discuss these particular texts. As far as I know, I may be wrong about this, and there may be other controversial areas that that are there, but maybe not to the degree that these have generated controversy over the year. If in this description of men there are two descriptions that have been controversial and caused more issues than any other, it has been, what does it mean, husband of one wife, and what does it mean with regard to children? Timothy words it different than Titus. Titus words it different than Timothy. Paul words it different in two different places. What does that mean then? And that's what I want to endeavor to try to teach and share with you at this time. First of all, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he says, one who rules well his own house. This idea of rule, as I've tried to elucidate time after time, is the word that means stand before. It does not have anything to do with the idea, connotation, notation, or anything. It has to do with a dictator. This is not a word that used to describe the atrophies. This is not a Hitler kind of word. The elders say jump and you ask how high. And if you don't jump that high, then they're just going to whip you to death. This is not a legislative word. I hope we've all illustrated throughout the course of this lesson, while there are judgments and decisions to be made, elders have no legislative authority. And so this is not a word that says, I force you to do that. You are forced to do this. The rule is with a heavy hand of rule. 
Sometimes that rule is challenged because of things like hypocrisy. Sometimes it's challenged because of things like inconsideration, uh, lack of compassion, lack of care, lack of concern, selfishness. Sometimes it's a failure to admit fault. Sometimes it's a weakness to accept one's own responsibilities. All those things are, are part of sometimes what makes it hard for families to fall under the rule of a man in the house. So here's talking about the rule of the father in the house. And sometimes because a man is described that way, a hypocrite, he expects something of the children, doesn't expect of himself. He's inconsiderate of the family. He's capricious, flighty. He is a man that is selfish as opposed to giving, giving concern to his family first. He's a man that lacks compassion and care for his family. He's a man that is unwilling to admit his faults or failures. And a man that doesn't take seriously his responsibility. It's hard for a family to come under the rule of a man like that. That kind of man is not the man Paul is talking about that stands before his family. That kind of man is more the man that fits the rule of the Gentiles that we've talked about through the lesson, who lorded over the people. This is not a lorded over the people kind of rule. This is the idea of rule to stand before. And how do you stand before? You stand before being blameless. You stand before being sober-minded. You stand before not being violent. You stand before being hospitable. You stand before being able to teach. You stand before not being given to wine. You stand before not being violent. You stand before not being greedy. You stand before being gentle but not quarrelsome and not covetous. You stand before not being a novice. You stand before the family with these descriptions. Also, that which would be illustrative or descriptive of what an elder is or what a shepherd is or what a bishop is. You stand before being that kind of man. This father stands, this is the kind of father who stands before his family. So he's talking about the kind of man who stands before his family. And he says, rules well his household. That word household has a little, it's a very general term. It's not a specific term. And really the term is generic to the time. Household at that time would have been a little bit different than households in our times. In a time where the patriarchs were still a patriarch and people basically lived within the same house or same community, close commune, commune with one another, you had the father that was indeed the patriarch and his house involved more than just the children. It involved all that were associated with the functioning of that household that was there. And so here was the household that he had, not just the family, but all who helped the function of that household. He ruled well before them, so it wasn't just his children and his wife that was there. It was the totality of his household, those who were under his care and his responsibility. Here was a man who had dignity. Here was a man who had respect. Here was a man who had integrity. Here was a man who had care and compassion and concern for those under his rule. Here was a man that was fair. Here was a man that is honest. Here was a man that fulfilled the role of one who ruled well his own household. And so he talks about ruling well the household. He's talking about how the man stands before his house. Does the description of this man describe how he stands before his house. 
And so therefore he is viewed by his family as a man of wisdom, as a man of maturity, as a man whose word when he speaks is heard, as a man whose word when he speaks is respected. Does he by his very presence instill in his family a sense of reverence toward him, a respect and honor toward him? You know, in the Ten Commandments that are given, one of those is to honor your mother and father. And then Paul will use that same language in Ephesians chapter 6 and add to that, which is the first commandment with promise. And the idea of that was that you honored your mother and your father, and if you did that, it would be well with you in the promised land. You would receive the reward of the Father. The promised land looked at the, the reward and the prize for the children of Israel finally entering in and being subject to God and following their leaders, following Joshua and Caleb over as they failed to follow Moses. And so what he's saying here is a picture of one who wants to enter God's promised land is one who honors his father and his mother. He's not one who curses father and mother. If you were to curse father or mother in that period of time, or you were to strike mother or father in that period of time, it would be something that would be, would be a capital offense. If you were to talk back and be disrespectful, it would not be something that was viewed as honorable. I'm sure we've all seen it. Maybe our kids have done it. Our kids aren't exempt from things. Our kids, as much as we might like to think, they're nice little precious people. Sometimes they have a little devilishness in them, and I... I say that of my two, and I say that of my eight grandkids. Sometimes they're in the store, and they don't get what they want, and what do they do? They cry out. And they kick and they scream until they get what they want. And then finally, the parent gives in to them because they're kicking and screaming, and the child becomes the parent, so the parent being the child, or the parent being the parent, the child becomes the parent. And so you have the roles that are reversed. And so the parent gives in to the child and the wants of the child as opposed to standing before the child and leading the child and making the child understand there is a way we control ourselves in this family. There's a way we behave in this family. Sometimes little children will tear their mom and daddy, no. Or they'll strike their mom and their daddy. And nothing is done to follow through with that. And they grow up not respecting mother and father. They grow up not listening to the force of the father. They grow up not respecting the mother. And then others see that. Others see that out of a young family. And they remember years later. Well, I remember when because people have long memories. Remember when so-and-so. I remember when they didn't control him. I remember when they didn't control her. I remember when they let him or her scream out and they did nothing about that. I remember them at some place. We were all together. And they yelled and they screamed at their parents and they did nothing about that. I remember that. And so the idea here is one who rules, and in the ruling of that, has a control. Not a control by force, but a control by respect. A control by respect and honor and reverence for their father, for their household, for his leadership, and for him being the father. I was so fortunate in my life to have a father whose children respected him. I have said before, I will acknowledge, there was a time I was afraid of my father. And there was a time I needed to be afraid of my father. 
because I was an absolute ignoramus and knucklehead. I needed his strong hand. But that strong hand produced a respect that says, when he walks in the room, I stand. When he walks in the room, I honor him. In the Old Testament, Respect was toward age, not youth. We live in a culture where respect is toward youth, not age. It was a time in which when, when people of age would walk in, people of youth would stand. Why would you stand? Because someone of age and honor has walked into our presence. That's the idea that he's talking about here with regard to one who rules well his own household. And so, we think about the idea of rule. I pause and I ask this question. Can this church find a man or men who fit that description with regard to how his family responds to him? Can we find that kind of man or men? The second consideration I want to give you is with regard to what does faithful or believing mean? You know, words, words have definitions to them. And just because we can define a word a particular way doesn't mean in every context you find it, that word is defined that particular way. Let me illustrate that with a couple of things. Turn to Matthew chapter 25 real quickly. Matthew chapter 25. And look at verse 5. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 5. He said, but while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. Keep that word slept in mind. Now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 30. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 30. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Question, does the word sleep mean the same thing in both, both those texts? In Matthew chapter 25 and verse 5 it says, But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. That's a literal sleep. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 30, he says, For this reason many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. That's a spiritual sleep. So you have the word sleep that's used. And the word sleep can be defined by strictest of definition, but you see in different contexts, it means different things. Let me give another illustration. Turn to John chapter 3 and verse 3. John chapter 3 and verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Focus on that word born. Turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. You have the same word. Does the word mean the same thing in other texts? In Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1, you have a physical birth. 
But the same word is used in John chapter 3 and verse 3 with regard to a spiritual birth. So you see there are terms that are used, but terms, terms have context to them. And so for that, I now turn your attention back to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Because in Titus chapter 1, you have the Apostle Paul addressing Titus in this way. Titus chapter 1 and verse 6. If any man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having believing children, or faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. Let me read that again, please. If any man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. Perhaps yours, like the New American Standard, or the American Standard, says this. For a bishop must be blameless, a steward of God, I'm sorry, for a bishop must be blameless, the husband of one wife, having believing children, not accused of accusation or dissipation or insubordination. Now, you have two completely different ways to take that passage with those two different translations that are given there. American Standard, New American Standard says, believing children. King James and others say, faithful children. The question is, which is it? I want to share with you, and bear with me from a technical point of view here for just a moment. In Kittle's Theological Word Dictionary, I want to share with you the definition of this word. The word faithful or believing in Titus chapter 1 is the same word that's used in different contexts in different ways. But I want to read to you the definition that Kittle's Theological Word Dictionary gives to this. For just your information that you might know that I can read a Greek word, the Greek word is pistos, P-I-S-T-O-S. That's the Greek word. Classical Greek, Kittle says in defining this in classical Greek, which is attested first means A, trusting, also with the nuance of obedience, or B, trustworthy, with regard to faithful or reliable. Pistis, which is the same word, different noun, adjective, or verb, has the same sense of confidence, certainty, trust. Then, B, trustworthiness, or C, guarantee or assurance in the pledge of an oath with the two nuances of trustworthiness or proof. Now that you might digest that, let me take the time to go back with that again. I really did try to put this on a PowerPoint, but it did not translate. Pistos, which is attested first, means trusting, with the nuance of obedience, or B, trustworthy, faithful or reliable. Pistis, confidence or certainty, trust. Or B, trustworthiness. Or C, guarantee or assurance in the sense of the pledge or notes with the nuance of trustworthiness or proof. So you have an A and a B there, which really are the major considerations here. Using a passive or an active sense. If you look at the word faithful, and you translate that word in an active sense, that means children who believe, they do the believing. Thus, they are the ones. But if you use it in a passive sense, it is those who have demonstrated they can be trustworthy. They're not doing the acting. They're not doing the believing. But they are forming their manner of life where the others can put their trust in them. So one has to do with the person doing the believing or the acting or trusting. 
The other having to do with being trusted or the one having confidence placed in them. That's the word. The word pistos is there. You can't tell by the definition. You can't tell by the definition how the word is used. The context has to determine the definition. For example, let me, let me venture with that just a moment with you. Let me, let me venture with that just a moment. Turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20 and verse 27. Let me illustrate those two things with you. Turn to John chapter 20 and verse 27. Look at John chapter 20 and verse 27. He said, Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands. Reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. There, Thomas is doing the believing. Thomas is not having something put at him. Thomas is doing the believing himself. Turn to Acts chapter, 6, Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 and verse 45. Acts chapter 10 and verse 45. He says, And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Notice, you have those of the circumcision, they're doing the believing. They're believing. So you have Thomas, don't be unbelieving, but be believing. Thomas, you take the active part. Or here, the Gentiles, they took the active part. They did the believing. But let's look at the opposite side. Turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 and look at verse 25. I'm sorry, verse 45. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 45. Notice he says, Who then is a faithful and wise servant? whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season. That's the same word we're talking about. The same word we noticed as believe in those other two passages. But notice the sense of it. Who then is a faithful and wise servant? Who's a servant whom you can put your trust? Who's a servant one whom you can put your confidence? Who's a servant in one that is trustworthy? Look at Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. And look at what he will say in verse uh, 21. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Same word. Same word we looked at with regard to Thomas believing or the Gentiles believing. Same word we looked at with regard to the servant being trustworthy. And so he says here, well done, my good and believing servant, my faithful, my trustworthy servant. You've taken the talents I've given you. And you have used them, and you have demonstrated you are worthy, you are worthy of trust. One last passage, and then we'll turn to our text. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9. God who is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is faithful. There's our very word again, pistos. God is one in whom you can put your trust 
and confidence. So you see that same word is used. And you go back to the very basic definition of it, that again, that, that you have that Kittle gives this in his theological word study. He says, A, trusting, or B, trustworthy, or faithful, or reliable. You can't tell by the definition. When you go back to the root of the definition, you have to see how it's used in its context. That's our question. Now the question is, which is it? Which is it going to be with us? How are we going to look at that? Well, before I go there, let me show you how Paul uses this word in his writings. Just through Timothy and Titus real quick. So turn to, to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. Here's Paul using this word in, throughout the epistles, the, prison, uh, the pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy 1 verse 12. I think... Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me, a, counted me faithful, having put me into the ministry, having counted me trustworthy, having put confidence in me. Look at verse 15 of the same chapter. This is a faithful saying, and with all acceptance that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. A faithful saying, a saying in which you can put confidence and trust. Look at chapter 3 and verse 11. Chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderous, temperate, faithful in all things. Here he describes the wives, maybe of deacons, maybe wives who would be deaconesses at a time. And how are they to be? They're to be faithful in all things, trusted in all things. Look at chapter 4 and verse 9. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Here's a saying that you can put your confidence in. Look at chapter 6 and verse 2. Chapter 6 of 1 Timothy and verse 2. And those who have believing masters, let them despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. And teach and exhort. Those who have believing masters, those who have a master that whom you can put your confidence or trust. You are putting your trust in the masters. Learn 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. And these things you have heard from me among many witnesses. Commit these to faithful men, trustworthy men. Look at verse 11 of the same chapter, 2 and 11. This is a faithful saying that if we die with him, we also shall live with him. And look at verse 13, same chapter. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. We cannot deny himself. Titus chapter 1, and look at verse 6. Titus chapter 1 and verse 6. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, verse 9, holding fast the faithful word. Chapter 3 of Titus and verse 8. This is a faithful saying and these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable. Now, I say that just as a pointer to consider, because it could be that in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 6, it is a different usage. But how does Paul use the word throughout what he writes in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus? Paul uses the word faithful to mean trustworthy, put confidence in, one in whom you can place your trust. In fact, the term itself is used 32 times, and seven times it is used in the passive sense other 25 times it is used in the, in the uh, 
seven times did you believing that way or 32 times trusted or trustworthy or 20, 25 times. So, all that shows you the different ways the word can be used. But let's return. Let's return to 1 Timothy, to Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 3. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, I'm sorry, Titus chapter 1 and verse 6, again it says, If a man is blameless, the husband and one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. Question, what does the parallel text say? How does the parallel text word that? Look at the harmony of the parallel text. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 now. Notice the harmony of the text. That's an indicator. One who rules well his own house, having children in submission with all reverence, for as one does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? What does the harmony text say? The harmony is looking at how does a man rule his house? That's what he's looking at there. Another indicator. So you have definitions, you have use of context, and now you have a harmony that matches that. Something else to consider is you have a contrast. And so he goes back to verse 6. Having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination. If you go to the restaurant this morning after we get done with this marathon, and you sit down, you say, I'll have tea, not steak. Is that a contrast? No. I'll have tea, not water. That's the contrast. A contrast has to balance out, or it's not a contrast. And so notice that the latter part of the contrast, not accused of dissipation, dissipation or insubordination. What does that mean? Not accused of someone who has a life of excess that is just out of control, that is unruly. Well, that's one side of the contrast. Then how would the contracts balance out? Would it be believing children not given dissipation or unruly? Or would it be trustworthy? Ones in whom you can put your confidence and trust, not those who are given to excess and dissipation. It would seem to me that if the contrast were going to balance out, if it were believing children, it would say believing children, not unbelieving children. But that's not the contrast. The contrast is how does he rule well his house? Does he rule well his house so that his children respect his rule and they're not given to excess and unruly? When they're out of his presence, can he trust them? Are they illustrative of the respect they have for their father when they're out of, their pre- out of his presence? This is how they behave. They re- behave in a, in a very self-controlled, very respectful way toward their father. And they're not given to excess or unruliness. Which of those would describe the character of the man? If it is believing children... A father is responsible for teaching his children. That would be part of controlling. But a father's not responsible for his children obeying the gospel. A father's not responsible for his children obeying being baptized. That's the choice of the child. That speaks to the child's heart, not to the heart of the father. And what we're trying to see here is if you go back to First Timothy chapter one again. Notice I said circle this word, verse 3, verse 2. A bishop must then be. Be, we're talking about what the man is. What kind of man is. It's to be 
He is to be blameless and he is to be, to be, to be. He is to be a what? A man who what? Make sure his children are Christians, obeyed, baptized believers, or a man who has taught his children respect and honor. And you can see it in their behavior of him, their respect for him. And in doing so, he rules his house well. So you have two considerations. One is believing children that they must then be baptized, be Christians, or those who are respectful of the Father's rule and He can trust them and put His confidence in them because He's gained confidence in them and He has gained trust in them. So you have to define the term. You see how the term is used in context. And you have to pay attention to to the contrast. And you have to pay attention to the harmony passage, the parallel passage. And as a result of that, you have to conclude which is it of these two men? The third thing we talk about then is faithful or believing at home or all time. The idea of having faithful children that you see in Titus chapter 1, having faithful children, that word having is present participle, and it means one who is identified with the act of. For time's sake, I'm going to cut that short. I had a lot of passages to show you in this, but time is running on. I don't want to keep you too long. One who is identified as one who is in the action of this. It's not, okay, they're in his house now. But it's one who's been identified with the action of ruling his house well. One who's identified with the action of having children not given to right or dissipation. One whose action is in the, one who is in the action of this. He is demonstrated by his family. He has involved in this kind of action. So it's not now. If they're not in your home, you have demonstrated you have that kind of action, but now if they're out of their own, if they get to be 40, 45 years old, and they're out of their own, all of a sudden they lose their marbles and they go crazy. They're under their own rule, their own house. They're under the rule of the Father. Now, is the father going to do everything he can to try to persuade them to come back? Yes. But whether they respond to the teaching of the father or not, it's the heart of the child. Just for example, was Timothy's father responsible for Timothy becoming a Christian? It says he was not a believer. He was a Greek. But Timothy became a Christian, one in whom Paul could put his trust and confidence not because of his father, but in spite of his father. And sometimes you have fathers that are as rotten as the day is long, and their children are as good as gold all day long. And so sometimes you see the heart of the child and not the heart of the father because the father is not the kind of example he ought to be to the child. And therefore he doesn't rule his house well. But the child is responsible for the child's behavior when they are no longer under the rule of their father. He is no longer associated with that kind of action with them. But he has demonstrated that kind of action of having faithful children. And so you have to consider the kind of man that you want to ask to shepherd this flock. Someone said, Ricky, you left it hanging. You didn't tell us which one it is that you believe. 
and you'll just have to figure that out because I'm not going to make your mind up for you. I have a conviction about that. I'm confident in my conviction. I've not tried to impress you with my conviction. I've just tried to teach the text to you. I've just tried to open the text and teach it to you. I've not tried to tell you this is what I think it is. I simply tried to give it to you. And that's where I'm going to leave it with you. Well, I know that you will be able to say amen when I say this part of our journey as far as elders is completed. I have enjoyed this discussion with you. I must tell you. I am passionate about leadership. I'm passionate about men who will be leaders. That's why for the past two years I've tried to do something in October, September, October with regard to having elder workshops that are here. I believe in that fervently and passionately. And so if I've come across in some way to you that was too forceful for your taste, I'm sorry. It was my passion that was driving me, not because I'm trying to shove something down your throat. Again, I just ask you to consider it. But alas, we come to this place. What are we going to do now? And so I want to take a few moments to lay out for you the process of what we're going to do going forward. Exit in the auditorium, you'll find on the table or on the little black circular table, uh, half moon table there, you'll find pieces of paper that we as elders have put together for you. I'm going to read you the first part. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 3, the apostles told the church, Seek out among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, who may, you may appoint over this business. That could be done by representation of the elders putting forth the names, or it could be done by going to the congregation, the congregation putting forth the names. Acts 6 doesn't tell us how it was done, it tells us what is done. But this is how we're going to do it. Suggesting a man for the work of a shepherd must be approached with careful consideration. Help you think through your suggestions. We have provided this document for each person. For each person you want to suggest, fill out one of these sheets to make sure he meets the standards of 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 6-9. And you may take as many forms as you need, completely fill out every form you submit. Let me say that again, please. To help you think through the suggestions, we provide this document for each person. Pause. For each person you want to suggest, fill out one of these sheets. If you want to suggest 10 men, you take 10 sheets. If you want to suggest one man, you take one sheet. However many number of men you want to suggest, you take the sheets. There's over 500 copied out there. Further, before submitting this form to the elders, before submitting this form to the elders, we ask you to talk to the man first. No submissions will be considered unless you have talked to the man. Ask him if he is willing to have his name submitted to the current elders and go through the selection process before the congregation. Remember, we're looking for shepherds, not mere decision makers. The current shepherds will work through the names, work through those names, and will address the desires, qualifications, and shepherding skills of each man. After screening those men, the bishops will put the names before the congregation for your consideration. We will not put any man's name before the church that we cannot support. 
We will not put any name before the church we as bishops cannot support. To do so would be unfair to the man and to the church. And then on the back side, there is this statement in bold. No anonymous submissions will be reviewed. No synonymous submissions. We don't want a synonymous letter in our box. And we don't want synonymous submissions. We're asking you, put your name to it. And so, furthermore on this, we have the descriptions of some things we've talked about in summary that are here. So, beginning today, going through March 12th, please submit the names or name or names of who you select to one of the existing shepherds. You can hand it to us, or we have mailboxes in the hallway. We have personal mailboxes, and we have mailboxes that say elders. You can put it in any one of those boxes. Beginning today, going through March 12th, please submit the name or names of who you select to one of the existing elders. A reminder, we're looking for a man or men that as best we can fit the descriptions of what we have spent two months discussing. And so, that's going forward where we're at. When we come to the next phase, we'll have further instruction relative to that, but that's where we're at. So there are forms in the back on the two different tables. Feel free, feel free to grab as many as you want. I hope... I have made that clear. If I haven't, then Joe, Brett, Terry, Rick, or James will be glad to clarify it for you. Because I give up. <laughs> Folks, I'm not unaware of the fact that this is a very intensive study. I understand that. I don't apologize for it. And the reason is because the leadership of this church is at stake. And we want to get it as right as we humanly can. You do not have perfect elders today. And you will not have perfect elders in the future. But I hope you have shepherds today who have demonstrated some proficiency in being able to be bishops to oversee this flock with a genuineness and care and concern. And I have every confidence that those will be the kind of man or men going forward this church will select. So, for this time, for the next two weeks, it's in your lap. My question to you is this. Can you find a man who has demonstrated his judgment, his maturity, his wisdom, his experience? Can you find a man who will shepherd you, who will protect you, who will feed you, who will give you water to drink? Can you find a man that will look after you, care for you, and be an onlooker for you. 
Can you find a man that will do the work and give his best judgment? Can you find a man that is willing to train? Can you find a man that's willing to shepherd? Can you find a man who you'll listen to and who you'll follow? Final question. Can you find a man or men that's blameless? Because that's the kind of man he is to be. I realize this has not been a lesson to speak about salvation or one coming to Christ. But perhaps your conscience has pricked you to this moment because of something that has been said or done in your life and, and it's something that is just urgent for you at this moment. Then we give you that opportunity at this time as we stand and as we sing. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com. Questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can. But thank you for connecting with us.